So 1 Corinthians chapter 9, as you're still turning there, let me tell you a story about my friend Jim. Uh, Good guy, been a friend of our family for a lot of years. I first met Jim uh, when he was coaching my son's baseball team. Jim's all about baseball. Anything baseball, if he's got a ball ball and a bat, he's in. Uh, And just a great guy. And uh, he's coached, man, over the years, dozens of baseball teams. Uh, He's got three daughters, so he's coached dozens of softball teams as well. And, uh, you know, he was sharing with my wife and I recently a story, an experience that he had with one of his daughter's softball teams. They were at a critical juncture in the game, and everything's on the line, and he brings the team all together in the dugout, and he's there, and I mean, you got to know Jim, and he's like, come on, kids, and he's talking to them about, you know, what they have to do. And he says in, in the middle of it, he realizes he doesn't have their full attention. Several of them are distracted. And then he sees what they're doing. A couple of them had brought their Barbies to the game and they're playing with Barbies in the dugout. Just like, there's no Barbies in baseball, man. What are you doing? You know? And I, I tell the story, it fits perfectly, you know, because uh, it's the perfect backdrop for here, the end of, of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. See, because these girls, they were all about the uniforms. They were all about new shoes. Okay, they're all about that. You know, they're all about the hair barrettes or whatever they do with their hair. They're all about the cheers. Those of you that got girls in girls softball, you know. I mean, they work harder on the cheers than they do on the, the baseball playing, you know. So they were into all of that, but they weren't. They weren't so much into the game. Uh, and, uh, and this fits as the backdrop because, you know, what Paul's going to say here really is that it's all about the game. You know, he's, he's going to give this analogy of, the, of this race and how, you know, the metaphor is that, that the Christian life, it's, it's like a race. And, and like any race, it requires discipline and it requires self-sacrifice and, uh, and it's super needful. And he's building on, you know, the, the message we had last week in the, the section of Scripture that precedes this, where he's telling these Corinthians that Christian love dictates that we die to ourselves. Christian love dictates that we sacrificially uh, give whatever it takes in order to connect with people and to reach them uh, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We looked at that, that last week where Paul says that famous you know, line where he says, um, you know, I become all things to all men. And we looked at this last week, what that means, what it doesn't, but really ultimately what it means is whatever it takes, that's what I'm going to do so that I can reach you for the gospel of Christ. And so this is the idea. This is, this is what Paul is going to, to be doing here today as, he's, as he you know, sets out uh, this, this example to, uh, to the Corinthians as we'll look at you know, the example of running a race. And the point that Paul is going to make today is that not everyone on Team Jesus has this mindset. Uh, there's, there's, there's many people who, who are on team Jesus that sort of are happy to be on the team. And we sort of, we like maybe some of the, the trappings or the, the perks that go along with being a Christian, but our heads aren't so much in the game. Um, and, uh, interesting quote I included here, I actually put up on the screen for you from John MacArthur. He's talking about the section of scripture and he, he says this, observing this, this text, he says, the athlete's disciplined self-control is a rebuke of half-hearted, out-of-shape Christians who do almost nothing to prepare themselves to witness to the lost and consequently seldom do. 
Ouch. And that's what we're going to look at today. This, this, uh, this idea that, man, for some Christians, it's more about, you know, the shoes, the uniform, the cheers. It's less about the game. Uh, you know, some, some of them look the part. We, we might show up at the game Sunday morning, you know. Uh, we might show up at the, you know, practices, midweek Bible studies, whatever the case may be. But really, our mind isn't in the game. Paul says this, beginning in verse 24, chapter 9, 1 Corinthians, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run? You know, he's, he's basically, he's, he's painting the picture. You know, you look at a picture of a marathon. Everybody's there, uh, they, you know, they're st- at the starting gate. Everybody's got the running clothes on, you know, and you can tell the difference between those that are running the race and those spectators at the sidelines that aren't. You know, everybody looks the part, they got the clothes on, but not everybody is there to run the whole race. I used to work with a guy, he, he entered into the LA Marathon. He had no intention of running the LA Marathon. He knew he wasn't gonna finish it. He, he registered so that he could get the shirt, the t-shirt that said, I ran the LA Marathon. You know, that was the whole idea. And then this is what Paul is saying. Hey, do you not know that, that those who run in the race, they all run, but, but one, he says, receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Now, if you're taking notes, first point of application, first point Paul makes is this, get your head into the game. This is really what he's saying. He's saying, get your head in the game. And you know, interesting the way Paul phrases this. He says, do you not know that those who run in a race all run? The way it's phrased, do you not know? Basically, the idea is, the implication is that they should know, but that they don't. And what, he's, what, what they should know that they don't is the application that as Christians, it's just not about being in the uniform. It's just not about being at the game. It's about being in the game. It's being committed to the process. And, and they haven't made that connection yet. They're still sort of, you know, self-centered and, and focusing on the wrong things. They, they really don't have this mindset that, oh, no, I have a part to play. I have a position on the team. There is a game in process. It's my duty to be committed to the... They, they still haven't figured all that, that stuff out. And so what Paul does is he takes this thing that they can connect with, this, this idea of sports, and as we're going to see in a little bit, the, the area there of, of of Corinth geographically figured very prominently into local sporting events. And so he takes something that they would all get. And in our culture, same thing. Corinth so much reminds me of Southern California, but you know, there's, you get it. Okay. Paul says, don't you know that, you know, all who run in a race, uh, that, uh, those who run in a race, uh, uh, all run, but only one receives the prize. The, 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 the idea is, Hey, you understand, I understand, that for someone who, you know, is, is in the Olympics, you just don't decide that on a whim. You know what I mean? It's not, it's not like, hey, what are you doing tomorrow? Oh, I think I'll run in the Olympic Games. You know, thought I'd give it a whirl. No, man, a lifestyle went into that. A lot of sacrifice went into that. A lot of hard work goes into that. And Paul's telling these Corinthians, why do you get that? Why is it so easy for you to connect the dots there and understand, yeah, you're going to run in a race? You got to train, you got to be diligent, you got to make sacrifices, you got to you got to really get your body into that place. Why can you make that connection but you can't make the connection that the same thing is required to serve God? Where's the disconnect here? This is this is Paul's point here. This is what he's saying to them. See cuz here's the problem. The Corinthians, by and large, their head wasn't in the game. 
They, you know, they had a very myopic view of ministry. In other words, they, they were very nearsighted. They were very self-focused. Um, you know, we've, we've gone through several chapters here where you see their self-centeredness just sort of seeping through in the things that Paul would say to them. He says, you know, uh, you guys, you're very self-centered in the, in, in the way that you think about your teachers. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. I'm of Paul. You know, I, it's the teacher that I like. He's, it's a real self-centered way that, for you to come across, you know, the, this whole idea of the work that needs to be done. You've got a self-centered idea in terms of your, your Christian liberties. You know, the meat sacrificed idols. Hey, I can eat whatever meat I want. Oh, no, you can't eat that meat. It was sacrificed to an idol. I can eat whatever I want. And, and, and Paul's point is, you know, you don't for a sec- you're all about you. You don't for a second consider the fact that you're causing people to stumble. You don't for a second consider the fact that you've got an opportunity to bring Christ to people and because of the way you live your Christian life, they never, they don't want to hear about him. They take one look at your life and they go, no, no thanks. If that's, you know, if that's the poster of, uh, if that's the before and after picture, I'll pass. Thank you very much. And, and so this is where Paul is coming from. Again, to use my friend Jim's softball analogy, uh, you know, it's all about the uniforms and the shoes and the hairbands and the cheers and the Barbies. But meanwhile, they're oblivious to the fact that there's a game going on and they have a position that they're called to play in that game and that they have a responsibility in that game. Uh, Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Just to the right there a little bit. Ephesians chapter 5. We'll go to verse 8 there. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 8, Paul speaking to the Ephesians, he says, For you were once darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Hey, there's a way that you're supposed to walk. You know, you used to walk one way as a non-believer, but you're saved now. You've got to walk differently. This is his point. He says, verse 9, For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it's shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them, In secret, but all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. And so he's he's like, hey, you you used to walk one way, you're you're a Christian, You, you ought to walk differently. There ought to be something different about the way that you live your life. This is his point. He says uh in uh verse 14, therefore he says, Awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. There's a way that we are supposed to walk as Christians. And Paul makes it very clear here that it's, it's a circumspectful walk. You know, several of our guys just coming back from, from duty in Afghanistan. We have the privilege of praying for our veterans today. And they, out on their patrols, learned what it means to walk circumspectly. I mean, there's a, they don't just, you know, walk just wherever they want. I mean, they're constantly on the alert. 
And so, you know, they, they, they're taking a step. They might, you know, encounter an IED, and so they're being very careful. First service, I said IUD. But uh, anyway, <laughs> yeah, I know. <clears throat> Whole different message. So, <laughs> so uh, say, welcome to my world. Okay, so, so they, they got to watch their steps very carefully, you know? When I was uh, a teenager, I was like 18, 19 years old, like many teenagers, I, you know, here I was raised in a Christian home to know the Lord, and in my teen years, I walked away from the Lord. And, uh, and so, you know, I'm, I'm, whatever I was, 18, 19 years old, I'm, I go out on a camping trip with all of my friends, and I'm acting like an idiot, I'm just stupid, and, and all the guys are there, and they're, they're drinking kamikazes, and, and I'm all or nothing, man, so there I am, and I'm up in Kennedy Meadows, up in the high Sierras, camping with my friends, and I'm just a stupid idiot slob drunk, you know, up there with all my friends, and, um, and I blacked out, and I came to, I woke up, my first conscious thought, I'm freezing, I'm buck naked, out, I have no idea where I'm at. It's pitch, I could not see my hand in front of my face, it was that dark, right? And my first conscious thought was, I'm dead. I didn't know where my tent was, I didn't know where the car was, I don't know where my buddies were. It was by the grace of God, obviously, I found my way back to the tent, but it was just it, it was just that. I mean, it was God just mercifully having me walk. I, I could just as easily have walked in the wrong direction. I just walked in. I found my tent. I'm like, oh my gosh, what, an, what a moron. What a knucklehead. See, I, I was not walking circumspectly. I didn't, I didn't take into consideration the fact that, dude, you're in the middle of nowhere here. I mean, you need to watch. How, I mean, you could die that quick just being an idiot. And I just didn't have a clue. I was sleepwalking through life, basically. And, and there's many people that live their life in that way. And I don't, maybe the shoe fits for some of you here today. Maybe you're here and you go, you know what? I've been an idiot the way I've been lead, living my life recently. Given no cause, no care, no consideration to where I'm living, to, where, to what I'm doing. Paul says, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time. Because listen, the days are evil. The days that we live in are evil. And Satan, man, he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for who he's going to devour. Now, likewise, back in our text, Paul is exhorting these Corinthians that they too need to exercise diligence and attention to their race. He's, he's, he's saying, you gotta, you got to be careful and understand that you're in a race. And, and you got to get your head in the game. Because you Corinthians, you're playing Barbies in the dugout, man. And there's a game going on, and you got a role to play in it. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way, and I'm going to put it up on the screen for you. We're going to camp out here for just a couple of minutes. He says this, Hebrews uh, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, 
first thing about this, we got to ask ourselves the question, what's the therefore, therefore in verse 1? Because he says, therefore we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, we need to lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares. And we need to run with endurance the race that is set before us. So the therefore, well, if you back up and you look in, in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, it's, it's what we call the hall of faith. And there in chapter 11, what, what Paul does is he lays out all of the great men and women of God who by faith have gone before us. And the picture that he's painting here really is this picture of this, of this celestial uh, you know, relay race of sorts that we run by faith. And how God does this incredible work through, through you know, Abraham. You know, this great model and picture of faith and, and others and how we now are playing our role. That, that we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses and we play a role in this. Uh, very significant there that, um, that, that we have this part to play. He says also there at the end of verse 1, if you notice the, fra- or the, the three-word coupling there, he says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That, that, that phrase, set before us, in the Greek, it literally means destined or appointed. And here's the idea. The idea is that your race, individually, your life, the race that God's called you to run, has been destined and appointed by God. Ephesians 2.10, I'll throw that up on the screen for you as well, says the same thing. It says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Here's the point. We have a spiritual race that we are required to run, you and me. It is a predetermined work that God wants us to do. God has predetermined the race that he wants you to run. He wants you to use your life in a very specific way, obediently serving him. And it all depends on the choice that you're going to make. Are you going to, are you going to understand? Are you going to comprehend what the, word, what the race is? And are you going to do it? And see, so there's this, this, this incredible importance that we need to understand that we play a, a role in, in the economy and in the kingdom of God. We play a role in this. God has destined, he's appointed this race that we should run. But like the Corinthians, there are many of us that don't have our head in the game. Like the Corinthians, a lot of us busy ourselves with a myriad of other distractions, our our job, our hobbies, our friends, our pleasures. And meanwhile, many of us don't know that we're even in a race, let alone the fact that God has a specific course marked out for us. And that goes for some of you here today. Some of you here today in light of Ephesians 2.10, that we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, I ask you the question, do you even know what God's prepared for you to walk in? Do you have a clue why you're here? Do you understand that, that God has a course that's marked out for you? Let me ask you the question, what's God's will for your life? Why are you here? 
What is your purpose individually? What's his calling upon your life? The Apostle Paul would say, this one thing I do, what's your, what's your one thing? What's your race to run? And, and let me tell you this, if you can't answer that question, you have a problem. You have a problem. The Roman philosopher Seneca said this. He said, when a sailor doesn't know where he's going, any wind is the right wind. Uh, Freddie Mercury, that great theologian from the band Queen, echoed this sentiment in his song Bohemian Rhapsody the same way. He said, any way the wind blows doesn't really matter to me. And you know, a lot of people, this fits their life. It's like, why are you here? I don't know. I just take one day at a time. Yeah, and then in that case, any wind that blows is the right wind. Just whatever floats your boat, man. And we laugh. (laughs) It's funny. But you know what? It's tragic. Because people's lives are being shipwrecked with that type of, of attitude and that type of thought. And, and that's only half of it, knowing what God's called you to do. Because some of you might say, you know what, Ted? I do know this one thing I do. I do know the specific reason why I'm here. I do know what God's called me to do with my life. Okay, that's half of it. What's the other half? Are you doing it? Are you on track? See, are you on course? Paul says there at the end of verse 24, run in such a way that you may obtain it. And that's Paul's next point. His first point is, hey man, is your head in the game? Second question is, are you on course to obtain the prize? See, the the trick in answering the question, are you on course to obtain the prize, is that we have to all agree on what the goal is, don't we? We have to agree, what is the prize? What exactly is the prize? Proverbs 16.25 says this, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And we're going to, you know, really focus on this next week as we get into idol worship in chapter 10. But clearly, many people are confused about what the end goal of life is, right? Maybe you work with them. Maybe they're a family member. Maybe, you know, maybe you're married to them. You know, that, that people have different understandings, different ideas, and would argue about what is the end goal of life. Some say that the, the end goal of life, the prize, is wealth. Some say it's power. Some say it's prestige. Some say it's happiness. Some say, no, it's pleasure. And see, depending on what the end goal of your life is, depending on what the prize is that you perceive as the prize, well, you're going to bend your life around the pursuit of that prize, right? And we see people doing this all the time. Man, the prize is me getting the body I've always wanted. That's the prize, And so I'm going to bend my life around that. My whole life is going to be consumed with how many calories have I eaten and and how many miles have I run and how many, you know, weights have I lifted. And and we orient our life all around the pursuit of what it is. For some, the the pursuit, the prize, well, it's it's wealth. And so I'm going to bend my life out of what's, what's the balance in my bank account. How many things, how many goods, how many possessions have I amassed? What is my net worth? For some, it's, it's, it's fame. You know, how, how many, you know, newspapers am I in? And, and who knows me and, and, and all of that. And so we see people bending their life around the pursuit of what these various prizes are. But here in our text, Paul's writing to Christians. 
And, and so what Paul does is, is when he's talking about the prize, well, his definition is the goal of a heavenly prize. This is what he's talking about. And to make his point, what he does is he talks about the prize uh, that, that we are to strive for, and he uses an example from sports, again, that would have been so common to, to these Corinthians. He uses the word uh, brabeon. Uh, it's, a, it's a Greek word, uh, and brabeon basically refers to the award that was given to athletes. You see, there were two big sporting events of Paul's day. There was uh, the Olympic Games and there were the Isthmian Games. And the, the Isthmian Games were held there in Corinth, as we studied there at the beginning of uh, getting into this epistle, that, you know, Corinth was geographically an isthmus. It's a, it's a narrowing of land. There was ports on either side. And so it is an, an, a geographically an isthmus and they had the isthmian games. And this was a big sporting event that everybody would have been familiar with. And so, you know, when Paul talks about the prize, he mentions the, the word prize in verse 24. And again, in verse 25, that Greek word brabeon was the award that the athletes would receive. Um, you know, this would be the, the same as, you know, when you, if you're in the NHL, you're, you're going to, you're going to win the NHL championship. That was the Brabeon. Well, what specifically do you win? Well, you win the Stanley Cup, and this is the crown that Paul then goes on to refer to. Uh, you know, he, he talks about the, the, in verse 25, everyone who competes for the prize, the Brabeon, is temperate, is self-restraint in all things. In other words, he's, he's picturing the, the, the picture of an athlete. You're going you're gonna to go run in the Olympics. You're going to be self-restrained. You're not going to, you know, be eating uh, in and outs all week and, and uh, chocolate sundaes and then go run in the Olympic Games. No, you're, go, you're going to be self-restrained. Self-restrained. You're going to be training for this. Temperate in all things. And he says, now they do it to obtain a perishable crown. That word crown there would be, you know, again, using the NHL. That's the Stanley Cup. So you're going to win the world championship. That's the prize. But... The actual crown is the Stanley Cup. And this is, this is what Paul is saying. He's using this as an example, talking to these Corinthians. He's saying, look, you, you got to understand as Christians, you're going for a prize. And, and, and you, you are going to obtain a crown. And the crown, see, the world kills themselves to obtain a prize and a crown that's a perishable thing. But you as a Christian, my friend, you're going after something that's imperishable. Your crown is never going to fade away. It's not going to, 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 to die. See, because what would happen is these Isthmian games, when they would win, their crown was this wreath that they would place on your head. And this, this wreath was, was this, this temporary thing that would wither and would die. It was called a Stephanos. And so they would take this wreath that was made of like pine sort of wreath, place it on your head. Well, two weeks from now, it's, it's dried up and it's dead. And, and, and so Paul, making this contrast, he's like, look, there's an ocean of difference between the prize that most people are going for and the prize that Christians are working to attain. And man, we could just, you know, spend the rest of the day on that, just how people wear themselves out and kill themselves for stuff that ain't going to last. Paul's point is, man, there, there is a difference. Now, what exactly is the prize? Turn to Philippians chapter 3. 
Philippians chapter 3, we'll pick it up in verse 7. Paul, speaking to the Philippians, he says this. He says, but what things were gained to me, Philippians 3 verse 7, these I have counted loss for Christ. Power, position, paycheck, doesn't matter. They're a loss for the sake of gaining Christ. That's what Paul is saying. Verse 8, yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. He says in verse nine, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness, which is from God by faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, Paul here, he's talking about the gift of eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. He's not, and I want to make it very clear, what Paul is talking about here is, is the... Is, that which, which is worth everything to him, which is his salvation, which he makes clear you cannot earn. You can't work for it. Ephesians 2.9 says that salvation is not of works lest anyone should boast. And so when we're talking about this prize, 1 Corinthians 9, talking about the, the, Paul talking about the competing in the race and getting a prize, he's not talking about this. He's not talking about salvation. Salvation is understood. He's talking to Corinthians who have given their lives to Christ by faith. And so the issue that Paul is talking about in our text is not about attaining to salvation. No, salvation is, is, is not by the works of men. It's by faith in Christ. So that's not what Paul's talking about. But verse 12, he continues, he says, Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press towards the goal. He's talking about the, the visual image is the guy that's stretching to cross the finish line in a race. This is the metaphor that he's using in talking to these Philippians. He says, I press towards the goal for the prize. There's the word brabeon of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Hear me, this is important. The prize that he's talking about here, salvation is is understood. He's talking to Christians. So he's not talking about that when he talks about the prize. What he's talking about is the calling of God itself. He's talking about the prize of the calling of God. 1 John 3.1 proclaims this, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. So the idea is that the prize, back in our text, what he's talking about, the prize is the call itself, not the benefits that come from the call or any other thing. The prize is being able to run the race at all, working with God as a partner to do the work of his kingdom. See, what you need to understand, 1 Corinthians 9, the the whole context here, What Paul is talking about, as he's talking to these Corinthians in the church, he's made it clear he's talking to believers. Salvation is already understood. No, his whole point in context is saying, listen, you as a believer 
have to be used by God to reach your brothers or to reach those that are outside of the faith. You need to be an ambassador of Christ used by God to to reach other people for the sake that they might know the Lord and come to a saving faith, that they might be saved. So the whole point in context here is what are you doing as a Christian to be a faithful soldier of Jesus Christ. That's the point. When he talks about striving and working for the prize, he's saying you're striving and you're working for the prize of being useful to God, of, being, of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I mean, think about that. I mean, what, is, what is it our great hope as Christians that when we would go stand before the Lord, he would say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And see, this is the whole idea here. See, every so often, God will give to me a glimpse of the things that that he's allowed me to do in my life. Every so often, he'll give me, you know, just that rear view sort of glance, and and I would just have these surreal moments. And and I I, want to be careful how I present this. Um, I'll look back in my rear view mirror, and I go, wow, God let me be a part of the planting of eight churches. And I think maybe, wow, God let me lead, and I think about certain particular instances of of the people that I've had the the privilege of, of leading to Christ. Now, I know who I am, okay? I'm, trust me, I know who I am. I've got, I'm lucky that God lets me in the church, no, so are you, right? I mean, the Bible says there's none righteous. No, not one. The Bible says our righteousness is as filthy rags to the Lord. I, and then you do a study on that. Find out what that is. It's not pretty, okay? And, and so there ain't, there ain't nothing good in you. There's nothing good in me. And the fact that God lets us do the things that we do, it's an amazing thing. But you look back and you go, well, I got to do that. And then you realize, you know, God let me do that. That's the way he's or- orchestrated things. That's the way he's, he's ordered things. My daughter, Megan, she, her very first childhood memory uh, is painting a fence with me. We, we lived in a house in, in Marino Valley, and we were, we were selling the house, and I was, you know, painting the fence, and I invited Megan to paint the fence with me. Well, Megan wanted to paint the fence with me. Daddy, can I paint the fence? Can I help you? You know, yeah, honey. Did she help me? She didn't help me. But she thought she was helping me, and she wanted to help me, and so I gave her a paintbrush, and she helped me. And that's the perfect picture of us. I think, well... God let me plant eight churches. And I just see Megan painting the fence with me. It's like God just, you know, he didn't need me to do that. But he let me do it. And here's the thing. If I didn't say yes to God, he'd have gotten somebody else to do it. See, what God showed me was that the that the invitations that he gives to me, these are things that I will, I will take to my grave because it's pure grace. It's like, man, I got to do this thing and there's this eternal deal and 
I told you guys the story several weeks ago. Just, you know, my buddy Roger in the fire department. And, I, and this great story, he, he, he's going to heaven because I got to lead him to Christ. Yes, but because God let me lead him to Christ. See, and if I hadn't said yes, God would have gotten somebody else to do it. But because I did it, well, that's something that I did. It'll last for forever. Guys, they, people build buildings. They, they donate millions of dollars looking to build monuments to themselves that, that after they're gone, they'll be remembered. Hey, no, if you say yes to God, it will be forever in heaven, the thing that you got to do. And that's the whole point. That's the whole idea here. It's, it's not because of anything good or awesome in you. And back here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, that's Paul's whole point. That's the drum we're beating on today. God has a plan for your life. He's orchestrated a race that you should run. And if you say yes to God, he'll use you in ways that will blow your mind. And they have an eternal lasting effect. And so I wonder today, what are you doing with your life today that's going to last for eternity? What are you doing? Are you in the dugout playing with Barbie? Or do you recognize, you know what? There's a game going on and God's given me a position and I got a job to do. And see, what Paul is talking about here, when he's talking about being engaged and, and, and running the race to win, he's saying, you need to understand, Christian, being saved, if that was all it was all about, the moment you gave your life to Christ, you'd be out of here. He'd be like, everybody out of the pool, let's go, you're, you're saved, let's get to the next one. That ain't it. God has saved you, and now the fact that you're still here means you've got a job to do, and he has an, a, a race that's marked out for you to do. And the, the determining factor in your ability to be used by God to do these types of things all rests upon your willingness to be obedient and your willingness to sacrifice and to, to lay down your life for the sake of, God, what, it is, what is it that you want me to do? This is why Paul says, run in such a way that you may obtain the prize. We need to understand the prize is, man, hey, you want to experience the prize of of seeing God work through your life? Play your position, man. Get your head in the game and stay on course. 2 Corinthians 16, 9 says this. It says, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. So Paul continues here in verse 26. He says, Therefore, I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. In other words, the picture is, look, I'm not, I'm not working the speed bag here. I'm not working up a sweat in the gym. I'm in the ring, duking it out. This is the real thing. I'm fighting. I'm in the battle. I'm engaged. He continues verse 27. He says, But I discipline my body and bring it into submission lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Now, two very interesting words here. When he says, I discipline my body and I bring it into submission, very telling words. The, the, the word discipline there literally means to strike under the eye and cause bruising. In other words, he says, I give myself a black eye. That's literally what he says there. 
I discipline my body. And then when he says that I bring it into submission, what that literally means is that I make it my slave. That's what it means in the Greek. Here's Paul's point. He says, look, I recognize being saved that I've got a responsibility to get in the battle. I've got a responsibility to say, you know what? God has called me to a specific work. What work has he called you to? What's God called you to? Why are you here? How's God gifted you? I don't know. Figure it out. And in figuring it out, you have to say, no, I'm going to be disciplined to make sure that I keep myself in that place where I'm useful to God. Because when you get into the place where now you've removed yourself, no, I'm not useful to God. Well, God will use somebody else to do the job. Somebody in between services was telling me this story about a friend of theirs. She was in a hospital. There was someone there. She, she was, uh, the, this gal saw this other woman and the Lord said, you go pray for her. And she, she said, I, I, I can't. I don't, I don't, I don't I'm, I'm weird. I, I, don't, I feel strange about that. And the, the spirit just said, go pray for that person. Go pray for that person. And she, she resisted it. She said, a minute later, the elevator doors opened up. A woman walked out with a Bible, went and sat down right next to that woman and began sharing the gospel with her. And the Lord spoke to her and said, that was your opportunity. I called you to do that. Unfortunately, it's not just a matter of saying no to God in that way. Many of us say no to God in the sense that I live my life like a train wreck and God goes, you know what? I can't use you. I'm gonna use you to go talk to somebody about Jesus. They're going to take one look at you. They're going to take one look at your life and they're going to say, you hypocrite, practice what you preach. Why would I want, to, why would I want what you've got? Paul's like, listen, I'm going to do whatever it takes so that I can be useful, so I can minister the gospel to people. I'm going to beat my body into submission so that I can do that. And when you get a taste of God working through your life and of what God wants to do through you, then you're going to be in that place where you say, I'm going to do whatever it takes to, to be useful to the Lord because there's a great work that needs to be done. I want to close with this illustration. In, uh, back at the turn of the century, the Salvation Army was, was going strong and uh, General Booth, who was the, the guy that established the Salvation Army, he was supposed to speak at their international conference and, uh, and he was ill, he couldn't make it. And uh, he was supposed to give them their, their commencement speech or whatever it was, the, the, you know, just speak to all the workers. And so what he did is he sent a cable with, with his speech, his exhortation to all these, these workers. The cable had one word, others. It's not about you. It's not about your liberties in Christ. It's not about, you know, the whatever you want to fill your day calendar up with. It's not about what makes you happy. It's about laying your life down for the sake of others. Guys, that's what 1 Corinthians 9 is all about. Paul's just driving that point home. You're not saved for you. Yeah, you got a hope and glory and God loves you and all of that's true. But you are a soldier of Christ if you call him Lord. And that means that you say, I'm reporting for duty and my life belongs to you. God, where would you have me to go today? God, what's your plan for my life? How have you, do, do you even know? 
See, and once you get a taste for the fact that God does use you and wants to use you, you can't get enough of it. God uses you to lead somebody to Jesus Christ. You're like, are you kidding me? I want to do that again. It's about others. Now, fast forward 50 years. General Booth, 50 years, turn of, previously at the turn of the century, he sends a cable, hey, others. 50 years later, there's a drunk in a gutter. He's, his life's over. He's just drunk in a gutter. And a guy who was the product of the legacy of the, of the Salvation Army, he himself a servant working, laboring with the Salvation Army, inspired by this message of, hey, others. He's used, he goes out, he finds this drunk in the gutter. He says, Lord, I want to be used by you. God uses him. He has a role, prominent role that he plays. He gets this guy out of the gutter. This guy ends up going to medical school. This guy was my grandfather. And I say today, I have life and God is using my life because someone else said, I will serve God. I'll serve others. And I wonder what would happen if that person didn't. What would happen if you don't say, Lord, here I am. My life is yours. I'll serve you. The choice is yours. You're going to serve yourself. Are you going to disqualify yourself? Are you going to serve the Lord? I leave you with two things and then we'll partake of communion. Two questions this week to ask. Lord, why am I here? What is my purpose? What do you want to use me to do? The second question is,